Hey everybody, Magnus here. At the time that I record this, words just come out that Norm Brayfogel has been hospitalized following a pretty serious stroke. Now, I can't imagine that any of you listening to this don't know who Norm Brayfogel is, but just in case you don't, and I guess this would tend to assume that you haven't heard, uh, you know, the episode, uh, that I recorded with Norm Brayfogel, which was episode 30, Trennis Magnus Punches Reality. Norm Brayfogel is, without a doubt, my favorite Batman artist of all time. When I was nine years old, I bought my first Batman comic book. The first of many, in fact. Detective Comics number 618. And right then and there, I fell in love with Norm Brayfogel's art. To me, that is Batman. When you say Batman, Brayfogel's is the one that I think about. He's definitive as far as I'm concerned. And like I say, the poor guy just had a stroke and he's been hospitalized. So my view of it is that you guys could do a lot worse than to send your prayers to him and his family right now. Best wishes for a speedy recovery, Norm. We're all praying for you. Hey, your attention, please! This is a piece of art. His Kryptonian biological makeup is enhanced by Earth's yellow sun. Dr. Doom wears body to conceal his own mangled form. Worst episode ever. Why? Who shot first? Who gives a shit? It's what's called super nerd nitpicking over something that's not really that important. Welcome back to Trennis Magnus Punches Reality, presented by Two True Freaks. I'm your host, Magnus, and I love Smallville. Usually, I talk generally about comics, movies, and TV shows on this podcast, but I take little breaks now and then to talk specifically about Smallville. You see, there was a time when I talk about Star Wars in every eighth episode, but that got kind of old after a while. So I figured I'd change up my format and use these eighth episodes to talk about something else. And in this case, that's Smallville. Now, yeah, it's true that I used the very first episode of this podcast to defend Smallville against a bunch of unwarranted attacks people have made about it, but that was all defensive. So... It it hit me. Why not just shoot the shit about the entire series at large? Talk about the stuff that I think was awesome, the stuff that sucked, and whatever else. Now, I gotta be honest. Originally, I thought about doing a commentary about each individual episode, but... Jeez, that's just a pain in my ass. Besides, I'd probably work myself into a heart attack if I had to talk about... Each episode from the dreaded season 4 
one at a time. It would fucking kill me. So, anyway. And so it happened that I replaced my Star Wars segments with these Smallville retrospectives. The idea here, in case it wasn't obvious, is to tie subsequent happenings later in later on in the series and subsequent seasons back to what's come before as I go along. So if what you're concerned about is that the show's continuity and layers and all of that fun stuff, the subplots, if you're worried that those things are going to get overlooked, don't worry. So anyway, so to get down to it, last time I finished my remarks after recapping Smallville Season 2, Episode 4, Red. That can mean only one thing. It's time for a break. So be right back to resume the discussion about Season 2, beginning with Episode 5, Nocturne. The Vietnam War, a conflict that changed America. Of those who served, many came back irrevocably changed, while many did not come back at all. This is their story. Marvel Comics presents The Nom. Join me, Tom Paneris, for In Country, a podcast that covers Marvel Comics series The Nom. Each episode, I will recap and review one issue of the series, as well as provide historical context that's important to understanding the events behind the story. Along the way, I will also take a look at the movies, music, and literature surrounding the Vietnam War. New episodes are posted every two weeks at incountry.podomatic.com. You can find show notes and other media at popcultureaffidavit.com. Oh my god, I'm J. David Weeder. I haven't podcasted for 36 hours. I need to make a podcast. I have to do this. Maybe something Golden Age. I need a partner. Golden Age, podcast obsessed. Got it. John's John's Toilets and Toiletries. John, we need to make a new podcast. A new podcast? I haven't podcasted in a whole day. I need a new podcast. Well, I've been listening to a lot of David Bowie lately. Let's do Starman and his Golden Age adventures. Ooh, who who was the artist on Starman? What's that Jack Burnley? Yes, we should cover Jack Burnley's run on Adventure Comics and Starman. Okay, I have just the perfect guy because I know another guy who loves Jack Burnley. So let me call Charlie Niemeyer and see if we can get him on a three-way here. Hi, what's up? Charlie. Charlie. Ah. We need you to do a limited series podcast monthly at starmanobservatory.blogspot.com. Are you available? Uh, monthly? Well, Starman, that's Jack Burnley, right? Oh, heck yes, I'm available. This podcast is go. The Starman Observatory, covering Starman's Golden Age adventures. Monthly at starmanobservatory.blogspot.com. Okay, I'm back now, and we're talking about Smallville Season 2. Now, 
As I said before the break, I'm resuming my discussion of the second season, beginning with episode 5, Nocturne. I don't like this episode. There's just no getting around it. But at the same time, you really can't argue that this episode doesn't have some kind of value to it. For one thing, Nocturne marks the first time that Martha Kent pops up on Lionel Luther's radar. Annette O'Toole and John Glover, uh, John Glover have great chemistry, so it always made sense to pair them up about as much as Martha's marriage would allow. And it works for both characters. It lets Martha be more than a farmer and a mom and a homemaker. And it kind of shows that in other circumstances, Martha could have had a much different life if she'd wanted it. And at the same time, it also kind of shows a, a softer side to Lionel Luther. He's not simply the one-dimensional, mustache-twirling villain that we saw f for a good bit of, of season one. Lionel Luther is capable of feeling love for someone. In fact, if you analyze this, a fair interpretation would be that had Lionel Luther married Martha instead of Lillian, she'd have kept him a little bit more on the straight and narrow, tempered those rough edges. Anyway, so all of that shit starts here, basically is what I'm saying. And Anyway, so something else. Byron's parents locked him up in the basement for a reason. Exposure to sunlight turns Byron into this sort of a beast. It's this Jekyll and Hyde thing they've got going. Now, Sheriff Ethan said that he'd get a, a warrant to search the, the Moore house, but Clark and Pete went over there later on before Ethan could even get his warrant, and then they pulled Byron out of the basement and into the sunlight. And then from there, Byron beat the shit out of Clark, and then he, he fucked up Pete's arm. This is good stuff for Clark on a lot of levels. For one thing, there's a lot to be said for shutting the fuck up and letting the police do their job. Had Clark let the system work properly, Pete wouldn't have ended up in the hospital. Second, Clark didn't think the situation through. He had no idea what kind of trouble he might have been walking into. He didn't stop to think about the consequences as, uh, of his actions before he broke into Byron's house to free him. And he had some idea, keep in mind, this isn't me just playing the Monday morning quarterback here. Clark had some idea that there'd be trouble because he intentionally left Lana out of it. Now, people, Superman has to be more on top of things than that. It's powerful and instructive for Clark that he learn these lessons. Apart from that, Byron puts up more of a fight against Clark than I remembered. I mean, I, when I realized that I was going to have to, I guess, basically re-watch this episode, I really wasn't looking forward to it. And honestly, a good bit of that is because I'm just not a big fan of Byron. But I had completely forgotten 
Well, I'll put it this way. There is a very strong argument here that Byron is the most powerful adversary that Clark has faced off with so far. And he's a lot closer to Clark's power level than anybody else has been. And that's strengthened by the fact that the first time Clark and Byron throw, Byron pretty much won. Clark never even knew what hit him. Now, when round two came along, Clark showed a willingness to adapt and alter his tactics. He knew that putting Byron away from, <clears throat> uh, away from direct sunlight was the key to defeating him. So rather than allow himself to get suckered into trading punches with the guy, Clark found a way to drag Byron out of the sunlight, and he diffused the, the situation that way. There's a point here. Clark's learning that every superpowered foe requires some amount of flexibility on his part, and he's willing to learn how to do his job better. This is the type of adaptability that Superman is going to depend on later in life, and it's easy to believe that Clark is eventually going to master this particular skill. And honestly, this is all a hell of a lot more than I ever expected to be able to say about Nocturne. Anyway, Ray Du, Episode 6. Ray Du is a hot mess. I love it, don't get me wrong. But it's still a hot mess. So, I, let's get the obvious stuff out of the way first. Chrissy Parker is the cheerleading villain of the piece this time around. But unlike previous villains, we have no idea what her origins are. Every other antagonist who's appeared on this show, including Byron, I might add, was given enough backstory for the viewer to understand just where the fuck he's coming from on most issues. Chrissy? Well, not so much with Chrissy. Still, I enjoy the hell out of this episode because it's just fun. It's just got that shiny, happy high school vibe that sure as fuck isn't true of at least my high school experience, but for whatever reason, this shit just makes for good TV. I don't know why. And I, the whole thing just works for me. I can't explain it. I, it just, I like it. It works for me. Drama, you've got drama going on at the school during Spirit Week. You've got the, the sports and the banners, the school spirit shit, all of it. I mean, I just dig the whole thing. It's, it's fun. It's fun. I don't know how else to describe it. Even that Be Aggressive song that's used every five fucking seconds in the show... It fits the tone of this episode like a glove. It's the just mindless stupidity that... It's just the perfect companion for an episode like this. That It's just it's all about high school goofiness and all that stuff. Another thing is... For as high school-centric as Smallville was in the early years... A shockingly low number of episodes actually pertain to anything really related to the school itself, but this is one episode where Smallville High feels almost like a character in itself as it attracts, or creates, superpowered weirdos for Clark to deal with. The mutants and the freaks come for the victims, but they stay for the atmosphere. Apart from that, the episode's pretty well loaded with character. 
It's actually a little underrated in that regard. We find out some backstory involving the Kent family. It seems that Jonathan Kent and William Clark just didn't get along at all. At all. William never approved of his daughter's relationship with Jonathan, and he certainly never approved of Jonathan himself, and he made that very clear, so Jonathan punched him. Things have been frosty ever since. Understandable, really. Still, Clark wants to have some kind of relationship with his grandfather. In the end, though, he realizes it's just not possible. He also discovers that he's partially responsible for the family's continued estrangement. William had... He'd attempted to reconnect with Jonathan and Martha and also help out with Clark's adoption, but they weren't sure they could trust William with Clark's secret because Clark was still too young to hide his powers. Clark realizes that his family being disconnected is partly because of him. Speaking of family problems, Lana discovers that her parents were legally separated for about a year, during which time Mrs. Lang played the field. Lana's mom got out there and went on some dates. And so Lana finds a picture of her mom and some dude she doesn't even recognize. She counts toes and realizes, motherfucker, this guy could actually be her biological father. The mystery man in the, in the picture that Lana finds is none other than Henry Small, the town's very own first family. Not quite the same thing, but Lex gets shocked by his own past, too. Smallville's new principal, Mr. Reynolds, used to work at Excelsior Prep, but he was shown the door when Lionel Luther bribed the uh, school board with a new library if they let Lex stay after he got into some kind of trouble and if they shit-canned Mr. Reynolds. Lex never knew that. He mostly had... He mostly had positive memories of Mr. Reynolds, so hearing the rest of the story made a pretty big difference for him. Anyway, there really aren't tons of deeper themes and implications for this episode. To me, this is just a fun, mindless episode with enough action to, to break up the slower parts of the story. No, it's not the, the greatest Smallville episode there's ever been, but I just dig it. It's fun. Anyway, Episode 7, Lineage. Rachel Dunleavy comes to Smallville believing that Clark is her long-lost son, Lucas, and the father is none other than Lionel Luther. I gotta tell you, I really dig the beginning of this episode. It's just the start of a normal day on the Kent farm. And you've got Clark, he's running late. Uh, Martha's exasperated at how her son can move faster than, than sound, but slower than a snail at the same time. Jonathan's got work to do, and they go their separate ways after a quick breakfast, and that's that. And uh, honestly, I mean, it's just, as an episode of any 
an episode of any TV show really has to it has to tell you a story, and so you can't have, you know, you can't really do scenes like this, just tons and tons and tons of them, right? But I always love it when the Smallville story, whatever is being told at the moment, is just put on pause for a minute so the characters can just chill out and enjoy each other's company a little bit. Clark, Jonathan, and Martha have very positive, very happy, and very healthy relationships with each other. And the show never loses when it plays that factor up, just a little bit. So, if you must look for some kind of character development in that little beginning bit, I've got you covered. Bust this. In the pilot episode, it's shown that Clark usually rides the bus to school. It's standard operating procedure for him. This episode, Lineage, shows him super speed <clears throat> off to school in full view of Jonathan and Martha. It's a measure of how much they've come to trust Clark that they, that they let him run to school rather than ride the bus like everyone else. Anyway. Anyway, whatever. This is the first episode with shitloads of focus on Clark and Alexa's friendship. And on the surface, it seems a little odd that a 22-ish year old man like Lex would be friends with a high school kid like Clark. In fact, honestly, it just doesn't work at all if you think of them as friends. But when you realize that Clark and Lex consider each other brothers, it makes a lot more sense. What this episode makes clear is not, it's not just that Lex wants a friend. More than anything, he wants a brother. And that's what Clark is to him. So, when a situation arises that means Clark may be Lex's actual blood brother, Lex uses his usual skepticism and, and objectivity. You remember I said last time that Lex tends to be slightly more empirical than Lionel when it comes to considering unusual things and, and strange answers to bizarre, fucked-up mysteries of life? That's the same kind of pragmatism he carries with him in every other phase of life. And he willfully puts all of that shit aside on the prospect that he might be Clark Kent's brother. He's not as skeptical. He's not as objective as he normally is. In fact, if anything, Lex is damned stubborn about letting go of any possibility that Clark may, in fact, be his long-lost brother. Now, don't get me wrong. He eventually does accept it. But think about it. It takes a shitload more persuading on that than really should have been necessary. Clark can say basically the same thing about, about wanting a brother, but he's able to be a little bit more rational about it than Lex. Still, Clark's had friends his whole life. But he's never really been able to truly be himself with anybody other than Jonathan and Martha. And 
he really can't let it all go with Lex either. But on some level, Clark believes Lex gets him in ways that other people just don't. So this episode works well, I think, for both characters. The other thing this episode does is spell out Jonathan Kent's role in the, in the Ross family losing their cream corn factory. After picking Clark and his ship out of the field on the day of the meteor shower, Jonathan and Martha rescued the Luthers after Lex was pe- pelted by uh, the meteors. Now, Jonathan thought he was just doing what anybody would have done, but Lionel saw it, at a, uh, saw it as a debt that needed to be repaid. And since everybody's getting their backs scratched here, say, Jonathan, how about you talk to the Ross family about selling out to Luther Corp? So, in the end, Jonathan did it to ensure the confidentiality of Clark's adoption. And he hates himself for it. The Luthers never had a presence in Smallville before the Ross family sold out to them. But because Jonathan persuaded the Ross brothers to sell the cream corn factory to Luther Corp, Lionel's been able to use Smallville as his playground ever since. Now, up to this point in the show, the viewers probably assumed that Jonathan was familiar with Lionel Luther's shit reputation and hated him on that basis. It wasn't personal. It's just business. This episode, Lineage, this episode shows that Jonathan's hatred for, Luther, for the Luthers is very personal. He hates them. He hates what they've done. He hates what they've made him do. And on some level, he kind of hates himself as well. When Goff and Miller developed Smallville, they created a lot of unique additions to the mythos. This is one thing that was developed entirely new for the show, and it works beautifully. I love it when Smallville would do flashback episodes like this in the early seasons. Now, they did it in later years, but, and this is just my opinion, I don't think it was effective then as it is here. Now, possibly it's because the show was conceived with this particular subplot already in the mix. I mean, hell, it's hinted, back, it's hinted at as far back as Zero, the 14th episode from season one. So it's been a long time coming, and that's my point. Now, in terms of other things, on a cinematic level, the flashbacks were shot very well. In fact, this episode's flashbacks went on to influence at least a third season episode's flashback sequences, but I'll deal with that in the third season. But I guess for another thing, episodes like this are partly why I love Smallville. The A-plot is is Rachel Dunleavy coming to Smallville and causing all kinds of drama and confusion. The side stories, though, and the flashbacks and the stuff that, that grow out of that, that's what gets it for me, you know? The end result is that if you don't like the, the Rachel Dunleavy stuff, that's fine. There are shitloads of things 
about this episode to, that, that you can still fall in love with. So, again, this is characteristic of Smallville, at least for me, in the first season or two, where if the main story isn't really your brand of vodka, you can still other you, you can still enjoy other aspects of the episode. And so, as a result, there are very few episodes that are just complete write-offs. Anyway, as a final remark, for lineage anyway... Obviously, Rachel Dunleavy isn't Clark's mother. Still, Rachel obviously gave birth to Lionel Luther's child, whomsoever that may be, and that child, he's still out there somewhere. As with other subplots, we haven't heard the last of this. So, episode 8, Ryan. Again, Tempting to invoke the stray clause here, say that I don't like Ryan, the character or the episode, and then just move on. But there are a few interesting things about this episode. For starters, the Warrior Angel, uh, the Warrior Angel meta comic comes back, and it comes out that Warrior Angel and his arch enemy Devilicus used to be friends, but then they had some kind of falling out. I would assume here that the parallel is obvious. And if it's not, you're listening to the wrong podcast. Anyway, so you got a scene with Lex and Ryan hanging out in the Luther Mansion, reading Warrior Angel comics, and Lex imparts some kind of interesting life advice to Ryan. When you grow up, you'll learn that not everything's black and white. Real life is not a comic book. Sometimes you have to get your hands dirty, make compromises. Well, that sounds super villainy enough, right? But here's the thing. Lex has a golden opportunity to live that out for himself, but instead he turns the tables on Mayor Tate and threatens to expose all of his corrupt business dealings to the voters. Now, it might have made for... I don't know, boring television, but honestly, I wouldn't have minded getting more of this over the rest of this season. It didn't need to be a, like a major plot or anything, but it could have just been something that gets tossed around a little bit in conversation between Lex and other characters just every once in a while. So, you and the mayor are still beating each other up in the press and on TV, huh, Lex? You know, that kind of stuff. Whatever, it worked. But, as I said, you know, what... What's interesting here is that Lex tells Ryan that there are times in life where you have to get your hands dirty. You have to make compromises. There are no black and white situations. That's what he tells Ryan. What Lex actually does, though, is pretty black and white. He keeps his hands absolutely clean, and he does not compromise. The advice that Lex gives to others, he doesn't follow himself. There's a strange hypocrisy here where Lex knows what his true innate character is, and that's how he counsels other people, but he can't quite bring himself to start down that path, at least yet. Anyway, it just it works for me. I just thought that was very interesting. Something else is, there's a bit of a Chekhov's gun being cocked in this episode, because Ryan stumbles across a secret that Martha Kent has been keeping. She's been sitting on it for quite a while. Now... 
it's going to be several more episodes before we find out more about this, but remember that there's a secret about Martha set up in this episode. Another little tidbit in this episode introduces the Summerhold Institute and the nefarious Dr. Garner, both of which are going to go on to play bigger roles in the story. But this is where each of them begin. Apart from that stuff, one of the more informative lessons of Superman's entire repertoire is he can't save everybody. As powerful as he might be, he isn't God. There are times when he can use his abilities to save people. But there are times when people are just going to die. It's, it's just their time. It's their time to go. And there's not a whole lot that he can do about it. This is the first time that Clark has had to face this lesson in the entire run of the show. This is the first time that Clark has had to kind of face up to some of the ugly facts of life. And it rocks the hell out of him, but he learns his lesson fairly well. Clark can't save everyone. And bear in mind, Clark got a real good look at his own fallibility back in Nocturne, when his poor judgment ended with Pete in the hospital. Not long after that, he learned through bitter, painful fucking experience that he can't save everybody. So, in an odd kind of way, All of the episodes so far this season have somewhat explored Clark's limitations and foibles and shortcomings. Whether it's just the natural limitations he has that Superman has to be at peace with, or if it's something that Clark needs to get straightened out before he he can become Superman. These episodes have so far all put Clark through a journey where he has to realize that as powerful and gifted as he might be, Number one, he's not perfect. And number two, he's not God. In fact, an argument could be made that season one lulled Clark into a kind of false sense of security regarding his powers and his choices and his life. He came out on top in most of the conflicts that he found himself in back in the first season. And it's really not a stretch to think that he'd started thinking that Victory was the inevitable outcome of everything he does. Not in an, in an egotistical sense, but... I don't know. Maybe, maybe more from a sense of foolish pride and delusion of immortality that every teenager has about himself. As a matter of fact, that angle actually helps sell a lot of Clark's decisions in future episodes. That false sense of security that he developed, the impeccability of his own judgment, and what happens to him, the choices that he makes, when that is forcibly ripped away. We don't see it here. But there is something that's coming on later on down the line where Clark faces his own limitations, his own poor decisions, his own failures, I suppose. And he makes some pretty fucking stupid choices. So, but... That's all in the future. All I'm saying here is that episodes like this tend to justify Clark's stupid decisions later on. So, anyway. Ryan's death is kind of a bummer to end this episode on, but... I don't know. What can you do? So, 
Next time, I'm going to resume my discussion of Smallville's second season with episode 9, Dichotic. For now, I'm going to take a break and be right back after these messages. disparate reaches of geekdom here in this restaurant booth are the most powerful forces of geek ever assembled Ryan the toy geek Scott the award winning radio host Jeff Scott's minion and Ron just Ron, dedicated to truth, justice, and geek for all mankind, it's Dinner for Geeks. Dinner for Geeks proudly crusades at twotruefreaks.com. My name is Michael Bailey, and I am a terrible geek. I don't watch Doctor Who, I don't care for anime. I've never seen any of the Harry Potter films, much less read the books. I like Star Wars and Star Trek okay, but I've never really ventured far into the extended universes of either property. Hell, I have never even watched a single episode of The Walking Dead. So what do I like? Comic books. I've been reading and collecting comic books since 1987, and I've been a fan of superheroes for as long as I can remember. Some would consider this a hobby but I prefer to look at it as what it truly is, a crippling addiction that I may never recover from. To deal with this borderline personality disorder, I started a podcast in 2007 called Views from the Long Lost. Every two weeks, or so, depending on real life, I pick a particular series or issue or character or whatever to talk about, and then I, well, well I talk about them, because that's kind of the point of a podcast. Sometimes I'm alone. Sometimes I have a guest, like my semi-regular co-host, The Irredeemable Shag, or my other semi-regular co-host, Thomas DJ, or with another friend from the podcasting world. The show is located at www.viewsfromalongbox.com, and from there you can find the iTunes link, the email address, as well as the backlog of episodes. Views from the Longbox. A podcast about comics, or a desperate cry for help? You decide. Every other Tuesday... So, depending on real life, at www.viewsfromthelongbox.com. Alright, I'm back now, and I guess now's a pretty decent time to sort of take a look back at this year. You know, do 2014 in review, more or less. The reason for that is because I did something pretty similar back in 2013, and I gotta be honest, uh, people seem to respond to it pretty well. So, 
Here we go again. For those of you who may not know, 2013 was a pretty serious ass kicker for me and my girlfriend. A lot of shit fell just completely apart for us that year. And so because of that, 2014 was mostly a time for rebuilding. Specifically, this involved moving to a different apartment. Now, I'm not going to bullshit any of you. I'm really not crazy about the place, but it's a good price and it's not like it's a terrible area or anything like that. Moving in was a little bit of a bitch though for a lot of reasons. And I think the most obvious of which is how relatively small this place is. And so a lot of stuff had to be left in storage simply, uh, simply because there's just not any room for it. On top of all that, the front office is staffed by two middle-aged women. The GM's kind of a ball buster, and her little minion or assistant or whoever is a complete ditz. And so between the two of them, they never fail to screw up the finances and bills each month. Look, don't get me wrong, they seem nice, but they kind of suck at their job if you ask me. Speaking of jobs, I got one in 2014, and again, this really isn't going to be breaking news for some of you, but you may remember that I mentioned getting let go from my old job back in 2013. Now, I don't want to go into the blood and guts of all of that all over again. I'm, if you're desperate to hear me talk about everything that happened, feel free to track down episodes 50 and 71 of Trennis Magnus Punches Reality wherein I talk a little bit about that, but the short version of it all is that I worked for a complete psycho, and towards the end, he made a, just a bunch of, at least in my opinion, completely unreasonable demands of me, and my refusal to cooperate with one of them pretty much what resulted in my being fired from that job. Now, this son of a bitch is one of those Ivy League East Coast old money types. You know the kind I'm talking about. The kind of ignorant prick who thinks he's better than anybody else just by showing up. He's richer than everybody. He's better than everybody. He's smarter than everybody. All of that. Well, I guess he wasn't smarter than me because I outfoxed the guy and was able to prove to the Texas Workforce Commission that I did not quit. Rather, I was forced out the door. And I had the emails to prove it. Because of that, I was awarded unemployment insurance even though I know for a fact that my loony ex-boss fought it tooth and nail. So, either I'm not as dumb as he thinks I am, or he's not as smart as he thinks he is. So, wow, for not wanting to talk about it a whole lot, I sure talked about it a whole lot. But anyway... So I got a new job. It's a much better work environment. The people there seem to truly want to be there, mostly. And there's a lot of room for growth and advancement at this job. At the very minimum, it's a good place to get my bearings back and wait until I can figure out what my next move needs to be. Or it could be a great opportunity to really build a career. So who knows? But because of the lack of jobs and the moving expenses, I really couldn't attend any cons this year. I gotta be honest, that kind of bugged me at first because I really love going to cons. But what, I, what I've kind of come to realize is that these days, I'm of the attitude that if Stacy can't come with me, 
I almost completely lose interest in going to cons. So, in the end, it really wasn't that huge a loss. I'd almost really not go at all, than go without her, you know? See, cons formed this kind of early pillar of our relationship, Stacy's Not very long after our first date, she and I went to uh, Comic Palooza 2011 right here in Houston together. We were still pretty much getting to know each other at the time, but that didn't really stop us from having this amazing con experience together. A few months after that, we went to Wizard World in Austin, and again, it was amazing. Tons of fun, and we both really enjoyed it. So, now I pretty much don't want to bother with cons unless she can come with me. Anyway, as far as stuff relating to my podcast, I spent my first full year on the Two True Freaks podcast network in 2014. I'm really happy to be part of this group. I gotta be honest. It's expanded my audience, and I gotta tell you, it's also broadened my my horizons because I'm listening to shows now that I probably wouldn't have discovered otherwise. Possibly the centerpiece of this year for Trennis Magnus Punches Reality was my critically adored Superman mega-series, and the reason for the simple existence of that miniseries is due to the way that a bunch of asshole Batman fans behaved back in 2013, when it was Superman's 75th anniversary. They chose that moment to celebrate Batman's 74th anniversary, and my thinking on the matter was, hey, two can play that game, y'all. So I launched the, the uh, Superman Mega Series during 2014, to celebrate Superman's 76th anniversary. So how do you like me now, assholes? Now, the response to the Superman Mega Series was pretty positive, too. Uh, and I think the reason for that is because my agenda was just to talk about a bunch of different Superman comics from a bunch of different eras. The idea was to celebrate Superman by cutting through the glorious ice cream of Superman's publishing history. You've got some Golden Age, some Silver Age, some Bronze Age, some Burn Age, All-Star, and a bunch of other shit. The idea here wasn't to show how one era of Superman's better than all the rest. Instead, what I wanted to do was show just how awesome Superman is in general. And so part of that required me to kind of have a, a moratorium on Batman anything for most of 2014, but obviously that's going to get lifted beginning in 2015. Also, during 2014, I began my Smallville retrospective series where I take a fond look back at Smallville and just geek out over how awesome this show is. Plus, I try to put the characters, primarily Clark, under the microscope and find out just how much growth and maturity took place over time. And I gotta tell you, the response to that's been incredible, too. It seems like a lot more people love Smallville than I ever thought, because there's been a lot of positive reaction to the Smallville retrospective. And I've recorded a bunch of uh, episodes in the Smallville retrospective, too. No shit. At the time that I record this, what you're hearing right now, I've recorded as far as the onset of the fifth season. Plus... I've got my notes and shit set up for the beginning of the sainted seventh season. So, big doings are coming. So, 
one of the things that the retrospective's done is to kind of help open people's eyes about just how amazingly well-written Smallville always was. Now, you guys haven't heard at least 75% of all the shit that I've recorded about Smallville and the continuity and character arcs and all that stuff, but if you like what you've heard so far, buddy, you ain't heard nothing yet. Now... Another issue in all of this is... The Big big Book book Report. report. I'm really not sure how much longer that's going to last, just to be totally honest with you guys. I don't know off the top of my head, but my guess is that Chris and I have got maybe seven or eight more big books that we want to work through, after which... That'll be it. And I'm not really sure what'll take the place of that feature just yet. I mean... No big deal, because the way I figure it, I I think I've got until probably like 2016 or something like that to figure it out. Just saying. Now, I gave a preview of coming attractions in some other episode, but I did so with the caveat that plans change all the time. So, I didn't want to be held to that preview as gospel. Which is a good thing, because I gotta tell you guys, the plan sure enough changed. So, the way that it is right now, and again, things could change, but the way that it is right now, I plan to kick off 2015 without any kind of specific mini-series or anything like that. It's pretty much going to just be me shooting the shit about stuff that's caught my, my interest lately. And almost all of this has already been recorded. And the weird thing is this, that not all of it's all about comics either. There's at least one movie that I plan to talk about. After that comes my epic, epic, epic 100th episode, which is going to be filled with all kinds of epic epicness. The lead-up to episode 100, by the way, is going to feature two back-to-back episodes of Magnus Talks About Smallville. That was the only way that I could get the numbering right for episode 100. Well... Actually, it's not. I could have structured it a different way, but I didn't. I structured it so as to put two episodes of Magnus Talks About Smallville back to back. So those of you who like that feature, you're in for a treat. And so that's going to last until the summer when I do a mini-series about a bunch of different DC and Marvel crossover events about which I've got a lot to say. Some of it's good. Some of it's not so good. But hopefully, all of it's going to be fun. Plus, I've got a couple guests lined up for that miniseries that I think you guys may did. None of that's been recorded, though, so I gotta, I, I've sort of got my work cut out for me on that one. After that comes a miniseries about female superheroes. Now, I've got three of those six episodes mostly recorded, and they're pretty much ready to go right now. After that comes my mini-series that's all about image comics. The idea is to take a look back at mostly early, early, early image comics and just shoot the breeze about them, you know? What worked well, what didn't work at all, what could have been done better, all of that stuff. That's pretty much going to take me to the end of 2015, whereupon 
I was originally going to do another mini-series about something else. Originally, it was going to be a mini-series all about Valiant Comics, but it looks like there's another podcast all about that same era of Valiant that's starting up right now, or has started up. Something. I don't know. And I really don't want to compete with that podcast. Or worse yet, come off like I'm copying his ideas or something like that, you know? So I'll probably do the Valiant stuff some other time, much later on. But I do plan to tackle that at least at some point. And honestly, same thing goes for that Ultraverse series that I'd originally planned, because that's been put put on hold, I think pretty much indefinitely, because it seems like a lot of people have been talking about Malibu's Ultraverse lately, and again, I don't want to cover all the same bullshit that everybody else is. Now, I gotta be honest, two years ago, a mini-series about, about, about Valiant or the Ultraverse might have been original ideas for a podcast. And two years from now, they may be again, but right now, this very moment, it's just apparently not meant to be. So instead, toward the end of 2015, I've got a different miniseries planned. And yes, I've already started working on it, but I want to knock out a, a little bit more work uh, on all of that before I say too much more about it. But you'll know it when you see it. But that's pretty much how I plan to spend 2015 when it comes to this show. And again, plans are subject to change at any time, at any moment, or for any number of reasons. But right now, that's how things are shaping up. And so, that's pretty much it for 2014. And I gotta tell you, it's been a shitload of fun. So, I want to thank all of you for listening, for writing in, for hanging out on my Facebook page, for sending in iTunes reviews, or, or just whatever. Or even those of you who listen, but have no interaction with me at all. And I know you people are out there. So, I hope all of you stick around for everything that's in line for 2015. So, for right now, bye everybody. I'll see you next week when I come back to talk about the untold tales of Spider-Man, which is my first episode of 2015. See you then. presents. We hope that it will be unlike anything else on this earth. Golf courses, campgrounds, stores, hotels. Earning my ears. A once-in-a-lifetime opportunity for everyone who participates. We're ready to go right now. Earning My Ears, a Walt Disney World-centric podcast, is available monthly at twotruefreaks.com.
Hello, my name is Robert Willing, and I love comics. But my all-time favorite comics are the Alternate Universe comics. Now, that's not an obscure comic company that's known only to local comic stores. What I'm talking about are comics that gives us a different spin on characters we know and love. From your Elseworlds at DC to your What Ifs at Marvel. Why am I doing it? Well, there are two reasons. First of all, I love the unlimited possibilities that the multiverse has brought us, and I wanted to share that love with everyone. I will be talking about all sorts of alternate continuities. If it wasn't canon, I'll talk about it. Elseworlds, what ifs, intercompany continuity is because, let's face it, very few of those count. I'll also be talking about non-canon minis like Superman Birthright, Shazam A New Beginning, Bob Layton's Hercules, and even Heroes Reborn because, let's face it, we're all glad that never stuck. And on a few occasions, I'll even be discussing the Doctor Who Unbound audios. I'll also try and get interviews and Q&As with as many comic creators as I possibly can. Now keep in mind, this does not count full running company lines or eras, so no children comics or the ultimate comics. The All-Stars, maybe. Oh, and the second reason, well... Hey, how's it going? Hey, what are you doing in my room? My room? This is mine at... Wait, Sean Engel? What are you doing here? Sean, I'm... I'm Robert Willing, and... Wait, you look like Sean Engel. Ugh, okay, I get it. You're from a world where I'm Sean Engel and you're me. Man, you... you get visits too? Yeah. You see, folks, my house is set in a unique location of the multiverse where every world intersects, and I get occasional and very random visits from other me's. Tell me about it. Once I met a version of me where I was Guy Gardner. Pre or New 52? Neither. It was the collateral damage one. Yeah, I met him. What an absolute jerk. Oh, holy cow. That, uh, that Guy Gardner was such an ass. So join me this summer as I grab first the multiverse and share different iterations of churches you love, as well as deal with other people. And then, you know, Jacob decided to take away the whole Boldarian thing and make a Boldarian storyline. It was just awful. What the hell was he thinking? I'm kidding. See you soon, everyone. Elsewhere in the multiverse, look at all your favorite alternate iterations coming soon to a podcast near you. Okay, so I think that's just about the end of that. Trentus Magnus, Punches Reality, is a proud member of the Two True Freaks Podcast Network. You can find the home for Trentus Magnus, Punches Reality at twotruefreaks.com, which is spelled T-W-O-T-R-U-E-F-R-E-A-K-S. You can also find it on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus, Punches Reality. There you can interact with your fellow listeners and also see notifications of new episodes when I put them up. You can friend me on Facebook by searching for Trentus Magnus, which is spelled T-R-E-N-T-U-S-S-M-A-G-N-U-S-S. You can email me and my parole officer at TrentusMagnus at gmail.com, which is spelled T R. E-N-T-U-S 
M-A-G-N-U-S. Do you have a suggestion for a topic? Feel free to email me, and I might consider thinking about the possibility of potentially discussing whatever you have in mind someday. And that's a promise. Did you know? You can sponsor any episode of this or any other of your favorite Two True Freaks affiliated shows. That's right. Simply click the PayPal link, donate any amount at all, tell us which show you're choosing and what message, if any, you'd like us to read on your behalf, and you will be an official sponsor of that show's very next episode. With your message read in the show's opener. It's that easy. And there's no minimum donation. Be a show sponsor today. If you shop at Amazon.com, please consider using the link at 2TrueFreaks.com to shop there. If you use this link to go to Amazon and then you shop, 2TrueFreaks gets a cut of what you buy. It doesn't cost you anything extra, and it really helps the freaks out. You get to shop as usual and help out the 2TrueFreaks at the same time. Do you have a podcast of your own? If so, why not record a promo for me to play on my show? It's quick, easy, and can help you spread the word about your show. I'm always looking for more promos to play. Keep it fairly short, and yours could be next. My promos can be found at this show's homepage for those interested. Just look for the promo section. The contents of this podcast are fictitious, hypothetical, and probably completely unnecessary. Any similarity to living persons or real-life events is purely coincidental and void where prohibited by law, some assembly required, batteries not included. Trentus Magnus Punches Reality is a Magnus Media Enterprises Limited production in association with Demonsacor of Milan, Italy. <laughs>